joining us this morning, where you find us in the middle of a a mini-series on stewardship. We've been looking at stewardship not just from a money perspective, but from a a holistic perspective, that everything that we have has been given to us by God. Uh, We've looked at our time, that our time belongs to God, our talents, our skills, they belong to God. And this morning and next week, Lord willing, or the next time I preach, depending on when Lizzie arrives, uh, we are going to be looking at uh, treasures at our finances. Uh, But before we get into the nitty-gritty of giving, this morning we're going to be looking at the heart and how our heart shows us really how we... um, The heart says a lot about how we view and use money, doesn't it? Um, The money says a lot about how we view our heart. Let me back that up. How we use our money shows a lot about our hearts. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, well, let's get to the Word of God. How about that? Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse eight uh, verses 1 through 15. Let's pray and ask the Lord uh, for His help. Father, we do pray that You would bless us with Your Word, bless us with Your Spirit, that we would meet with You now. Father, work in our hearts, that we might serve You not with divided hearts, but with hearts united in the fear of the Lord. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-15. through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give you my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also a desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need. There may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever." Well, I want to introduce you to, to somebody. Um, when I was, uh, after my 11th grade year, um, I went on a missions trip to, uh, to Kenya, actually. And it was a medical missions trip, and actually it had such an impact on me that when I enrolled at the University of Alabama, um, I, uh, I, I, came, I enrolled as a pre-med student. Isn't that scary? Uh, very scary. I, didn't, I made it through a semester and a half of biology, but I made it through a whole year of, of Kiswahili, of Swahili, because I thought I was heading to Kenya as a missionary, um, doctor. 
uh, I'm glad that the doctor thing didn't stick, and so do all of my prospective patients. Uh, but it was a trip that had a huge impact on me. And one of the things that impacted me greatly was getting to know this woman, especially on the left. I don't know if you can see her right here in the red dress. She was of the Kikuyu tribe. Kikuyu is the, the main tribe in, in Kenya, the ruling tribe. Um, and she was considered wealthy because we're standing by her prized possession, her cow. Um, I can't remember her name, and I, and I wish I could. But our, our time together ended with, next slide please, our, our time ended with the ladies of uh, her family, she was the matriarch, of singing and dancing and, and jumping up and down. They, they had such joy. They had an overflowing amount of joy, and I still remember the song they sang. And with the help of a, a Kenyan friend later, uh, I remember all the words, uh, Nasima Asante. Nasima Asante. Nasima Asante, Weiwei Mungu Wangu. What does that mean? I give thanks. I give thanks. I give thanks. You're my God. As we left our time together, they had such amazing joy and they were so thankful. They had an abundance of joy. Next slide, please. But what you didn't know is that immediately prior to this, they had served us their supper. See, not only did they have an abundance of joy, they also had an abundance of extreme poverty. I don't know if you can make it out, but we're sitting around our guides, the folks who came with us to this house, were, were eating um, a porridge. That's what it looks like, a porridge in gourd bowls. Uh, and we would soon be given uh, ears of corn to eat. And as we ate the corns, we realized ate the corn. We realized that we were the only ones eating. When we left, we learned that they wouldn't eat that night because they had given us all that they had. See their abundance of generosity, their abundance of, of of joy, and also their abundance of extreme poverty had welled up, had overflowed to an abundance of generosity. All right, we're we're done with this. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, this morning, as we look at this text, we are, we are confronted with a similar uh, situation. The Macedonian church. The Macedonian church found itself in a very similar situation. They were extremely poor and yet had a, an abundance of joy. And out of their extreme poverty and out of their extreme joy, overflowed. It overflowed into an extreme generosity, giving not out of their wealth, but out of their poverty. As, as Americans, we have to ask this question, how in the world could someone have so much joy in the presence of so much poverty? Because to our minds, the idea of, of joy, of true happiness, of, of uh, delight in this life, of a good life, is inextricably tied to a large pile of cash. But to these Kenyan women, these Kikuyu women, they had a joy even in the presence of their poverty. Next, next week, or next time I preach, rather, uh, Lord willing, we'll be talking about the nitty-gritty of giving and, and why we're called to give and what it means to give and how we're to give and all those sorts of things. But this morning, I think we need to talk first about our heart. 
Because as, as several commentators have pointed out, we don't have spending problems. We don't have money problems. We have heart problems. That how we spend our money, if we're frugal or we, we spend too much, we hold on too tightly, we don't hold on at all, all these things say a lot about our hearts. Jesus talked a lot about money. About 15% of what he talked about was about money. When John the Baptist showed up in the wilderness in Luke chapter 3 and he told the people to repent, they said, what should we do? He told them three things and they all had to do with their finances. See, finances get to our heart in ways that uh, I don't really like. It's been a convicting week as I have prepared this sermon. Well, the Jerusalem Council, let's talk about that. That'll give us the background here. In the mid-40s A.D., there was a great famine that hit the area of Judea, the part of Israel where Jerusalem is found. Uh, And it was a great famine in which uh, people were starving, in which people were dying. And especially Christians were because they no longer were part of the synagogues, were no longer part of an established group of people that could help each other. This very young church was hurting very badly. And not only were they hungry, they were also being persecuted. And the persecution and the famine were such that God actually used those to uh, spread the gospel all over the known world as people left Jerusalem in order to find food. In fact, we think that that's one such group that the letter of James is written to. But Paul, in an effort to help alleviate the suffering Christians, the suffering saints, and the, the center of the church, Jerusalem, uh, for about 10 years of his missionary life, he goes around collecting money uh, to alleviate the suffering. This is called the Jerusalem Collection. See, the Corinthians had already pledged to give to this fund. They had pledged to give and, and had desired to do so, and yet uh, some sort of controversy had arisen in the church, largely based on whether Paul was an apostle or not, uh, and had distracted them. And now that that's been resolved and they're on good, good terms again, Paul is writing to them, encouraging them, hey, this is something you said you do in the past. It's time to, time to get with it. These folks are really, really hurting and, and need your help. And, and would you please give? But see, where um, the Macedonian church was extremely poor, which we'll get to in a second, the Corinthian church was very rich. See, Corinth had, had two active ports, and it was a, a city of commerce, and it was flush with cash. And while the church may not have been uh, as, as wealthy as it could have been, we do know from 1 Corinthians that there were wealthy people in the church, and yet they had not given a dime, showing that it wasn't a money problem. It was a heart problem. But to encourage them along, Paul is going to tell, uh, recount the story of another group of Christians in Macedonia, which is where northern Greece is now. And these are towns you would recognize, places like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. We learn a few things about uh, the Macedonian churches. And the first we find is that they are abounding in extreme poverty. The, the Greek here says the depths of their poverty. See, they were exceedingly poor. They had been a rich city. They had been a rich area, rather, a place with with fruitful gold mines. But these had played out. And now Macedonia was a place of war and persecution and invasions. And the Christians had it all the worse. See, Christians could not uh, give the token sacrifice to Caesar, which was required to be able to be part of the guilds, which would allow them to be involved in the trades. 
which is probably, by the way, what's in view when we read about the mark of the beast in Revelation. They could not give the token sacrifice to Caesar. Therefore, they were excluded all the more from trade, all the more from from the financial uh, uh, vehicles of the day. They were being persecuted too. These folks had it very, uh, very bad. But here's the thing, even in all this extreme poverty they had, it was combined with an extreme joy. See, the text here says they have an abundance of two things. It's kind of awkward in the English, but in the Greek it's an abundance of two different things, of joy and poverty. An abundance here is meaning to overflow its bounds like the river might overflow its bounds into the park. As you might pour water into a glass and it would overflow its container, so both their poverty was overflowing and so was their joy. It seems a bit of an oxymoron, doesn't it? At least to us. But the text goes on to say that these two things... He's overflowed into something. You take joy and poverty together, and what do you get? When it comes to helping the Jerusalem church, when, when Paul is talking about the Jerusalem collection, does it end up in a, a written letter, you know, we're praying for you? Does it end up in prayers, you know, we're, we're, we're praying for you, Lord help them? Probably those. But, but it also ends up in generosity. Out of their abundance of joy and their abundance of poverty, It overflows. The same word here is used. They're overflowing joy, overflowing poverty, overflowed into generosity. And Paul says they didn't only give according to their means, they gave beyond their means, beside their means, beyond what they could afford to give. They begged him for the ability to take part in this collection. Why? Why in the world would they do that? This is, this is a paradox, this is a, an oxymoron for us as American Christians, as uh, Parker, as I think about what it means to have joy. True joy is not tied to circumstances, but we all know that's not how we all operate all the time. And our happiness and our joy in life is often tied to whether or not we have X, Y, and Z. See, how we, how we deal with our money, it says a lot about our hearts, doesn't it? And the condition of our heart impacts greatly how we view and use our finances. Paul is going to say in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Paul is saying, hey, if your love is genuine, let's see it. You, you say that you, you love, you say that you love the Lord, you love your people. I even commended you in being excellent in speech and knowledge and love. What will happen when it's time for a wealthy church to give? Will they give? As I think about the um, Kenyan woman that you just saw, uh, and I think about the things that, that I look to in life to give me happiness and joy, there's a great divide, isn't there? See, money shows us a lot about who our functional gods are. One of our Sunday school classes is going through a book, um, Counterfeit Gods, and it's all about idolatry. What we, who do we look to? What do we look to to fill the place of God in our life? Now, we, if, if you're a Christian here, we'd all say, God is my God. Just as this, uh, this Swahili has told us, I give thanks, you're my God. We would say that God is our God. But on a daily basis, do we really act like that? Or do we look to other things in our lives to give us significance and importance and meaning 
an identity, success. See, we look to things called idols. And oftentimes they are material things, aren't they? Sometimes they're things like identity and, and being well-known and reputation in the community. Other times it's success in, in, uh, in, in your profession so that people respect you. But oftentimes, in my life rather, it's possessions. And idols start out small, don't they? In seminary, when we didn't have a lot of money, it was a grill. We couldn't afford a grill. That's what it was. And we got a little more money and it was an AR-15. And, and I've, I've, both, I've gotten both of those now. And, and now my, my idols have gotten a little more expensive. They're just out of our reach, right? And with each tax bracket, with, with every increase in pay, you get your idol and then you constantly want something next, something else. If I, I've got to have that in order to be happy. What, what did those Kikuyu women have to make them happy? Not much besides the Lord. They asked the doctor who went with us when they learned that he had cows. They asked him, how many cows do you have? One or two? He had something like 50 or 60. See, Matthew six twenty one says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. My friends, what do you treasure? What do you treasure? I know I don't treasure the right things very often. And it's a constant source of repentance in my life, especially writing this sermon. Because money also tells us who controls us or what controls us. And uh, I commend a great book to you. It's called The Treasure Principle. You'll see it at the bottom of your outline in the source section. The Treasure Principle, written by a guy named Randy Alcorn. And he tells these, these two great stories talking about how, how in our pursuit of material possessions, they end up controlling us. And the first, he compares... Uh, physical possessions, material possessions to how the planets work. If you'll remember back to your physics class, the, the larger the body in space, the larger, the more mass it has, the more gravity it has. And the greater the object, the more it pulls in. So often our stuff can be like that too. But the more we have, the more it pulls us in. And the more we have to take care of, the more it consumes our efforts. He tells another story of, of someone who is uh, exceedingly wealthy and he's, he's, he sees him at the, at the airport and he's sitting by his private jet and he looks miserable. And he asks him, why? Why are you miserable? And he said, well, something's gone wrong as they're building my new beach house and my weekend has been hijacked and I have to go take care of it. And he was miserable. Here he was sitting in front of his private jet and he, all he could think about was how miserable he was. Henry Ford said that he would have been happier being a mechanic than when he owned the Ford Motor Company. Another, uh, I think it was Vanderbilt, said uh, that the care of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, would crush any, any man's soul. Money's not the problem. Money's, money's not a problem. Money is how the Lord, Lord uses money to, to, to extend his kingdom, to send missionaries overseas. There's nothing wrong with money. It's, it's our heart. It's our heart that's the issue. It's my heart that's the issue. Where... Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Money will lie to you. Or the love of money will lie to you, rather. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, we read this. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and, and harmful desires that plague people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
You know, in this text, talking about the love of money, it doesn't say money is the root of all evils. That's how it is usually uh, paraphrased in media, right? Money is the root of all evils. That's not what it says. The love of money is the root of many evils, is what the text says. The, the, the overlove, the, the inordinate desire for, the controlling uh, interest of your life. But the word desire here shows up three times. The last one to, translated as craving. In each one of these things, there's a progression, and it starts with just the conscious decision of the will. And then it becomes a sinful desire, and then at the end, this word craving means to strive for something with every bit of your fiber and being. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 11, that we are to strive for heaven and the Lord, and yet when we strive for things other than the Lord, it becomes an idol, and it controls us. Well, how, how can we, we all struggle with this? What's, what's the remedy? Well, a couple things. The first we must realize is that God owns our money. Just as we've talked about our time and our talents, that God owns those things and entrusted those things to us, so the Lord owns our finances as well. And everything that we have, not just the money in the bank, but, but all our possessions as well. We read in Deuteronomy 8, 18, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. You know, um, as we look at our jobs and our ability to get wealth, so often we say, look what I did. Look what I did. I, I saw a, a recent um, uh, advertising campaign for, for a well-known honor society, and they wanted people to put bumper stickers on their car that said, I earned it. I was thinking, man. How bold is that? <laughs> Look at me. Here's what I earned, and I earned it. Um, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that it's the Lord who gives us the ability to do anything, including to get wealth. He's the one who gives us our jobs, and even our paychecks are gifts from the Lord. But you know, He has is, he is graciously provided us all things. And I think there are two things that are an antidote to um, or really three things, the antidote to, to materialism, to idolatry, of, of money, and possessions, thankfulness, thankfulness for what he has given us. H- having watched or uh, looked at those pictures last night as I was pulling them out um, of our photo case, um, you know, in that picture I'm wearing um, pleated khaki pants, uh, a blue from Eddie Bauer, I remember that. Uh, blue, a blue plaid shirt, probably also came from Eddie Bauer, and, uh, and those gray New Balance shoes. 686s, I think. You had to have the 686s if you were cool. You know, everything that I was wearing probably cost the, the collected monthly income of all those ladies. That's not wrong to have those kind of clothes. I still have those kind of clothes. Um. But it is wrong to have those things and not be thankful for. And being in that situation and thinking through back, they would give us their supper. The Macedonian church would, would give out of their poverty. Am I really thankful for what the Lord has given me? See, He has provided for me over and above what I need. Matthew chapter 6 tells us that how would God not care for the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, and not also care for us? And I think that we could find story after story after story in this room of how the Lord provided at just the right time, at just the right moment, at just the right need. 
Because here's the thing. God is a loving God. And He has provided for us in amazing ways. From the air that we breathe, the seats we sit in, to the cars we drive, to the food we eat, to the families we have. But you know, the greatest thing that He's given us is He's given us Himself. And it's here that we find the greatest antidote to this issue and any other issue in our lives. It's a heart changed by the grace of God. See, guilt won't get us very far. Well, today I resolve to do better with my money. That's good. It's a good resolution. But if our hearts aren't changed, nothing will change. Not beyond a week or two. God motivates us by His grace. And as a grace that has changed our hearts, just as we sang of that amazing grace earlier today, the same grace that saved us is the same grace that keeps us. It's the same grace that God gives us each and every day to get us through the day when things are hard and we don't know what to do. And it's the same grace that will ensure that we arrive home and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. But as Paul talks to the Corinthians, he doesn't, he doesn't guilt trip them. He talks about the Macedonians. But the primary motive that he gives them is found in 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, look there. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Wealth is one of those things that is amoral. It's not immoral or moral. Uh, God has created wealth. He has created finances for His glory, for the use thereof, and for the good of His people. And the only way that we can have that view, to have the view that we would use everything that we have, time, talents, and treasures for the glory of God, is that our hearts will be changed by this verse and by the love of Christ, by His grace. The thing is that God so loved us that He sent His Son rich beyond measure, who created the stars, whose throne was set in the heavens, rich with honor, glory, power, and dominion. And he sent this son, and he became poor. Not just poor financially. That's, that's not all, all that's in view here. Became poor by taking on the flesh of his, of his creation. And he was born not in a palace, but in a stable that smelled real bad. That he only had a, a food trough as a bed. This would only be the beginning. He would live a life of poverty with nowhere to lay his head. He would know poverty of friends, especially when they abandoned him at the end of his life. He would know the poverty of God's presence when God turned his face away from him on the cross and poured out his wrath upon him. But this same one who was poor will one day come as a victorious and rich king to inherit all things. See, he too had an abundance of poverty, but he too had an abundance of joy. As we read in Hebrews, that because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And just as the poverty and joy of the Macedonian church, the Kikuyu woman, overflowed with generosity, so the Lord's poverty and joy overflowed with generosity that he would give us eternal life. Let's pray. Father, We pray that you would transform our hearts, that all that we have would be used for your glory. We thank you for the grace of God, of your grace, O God, 
that you would save a wretch like me. Oh Lord, we pray that each and every day we would grow in our knowledge and our love of you. That we would submit ourselves each and every day, all that we have, as living sacrifices to you, whole and acceptable. Lord, that we might be used for your glory. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.